Hello, bonjour, ni hao. This is John James and welcome to another episode of Champagne Strategy, where it's my job to deconstruct world-class strategy, growth, marketing, and the latest tech with just a sprinkling of champagne. This is a show where we talk to the modest achievers and the less famous but more interesting people of the business world, many of whom keep a very low profile and some of which are even from the underground. All of my guests are people who are senior achievers but still aren't afraid to occasionally get back onto the tools, into the weeds and get their hands dirty. They will often have battle scars to show skin in the game and money in play. This is an interview I've been wanting to do for quite a long time, but we were both so busy that it was almost impossible to arrange. And I've always found the field of branding fascinating, yet complex at the same time. And like any complex field, it attracts its boatload of imposters and Dunning-Kruger types. The main problem with this field of branding is that if you ask someone what a brand is, you'll likely get a different answer nearly every single time. And I know because I've tested this. Some will say it's a logo, a visual design, Others will point you to their brand guidelines document or just talk about associations. Uh, others will say it's a sound, a color, a trademark, or a name. Others still will sell you their brand model, which consists of five pillars, three attributes, seven tiers, and so on. So no wonder everyone is a bit confused, least of all business decision makers. Much like how medical doctors acknowledge but also can't explain the placebo effect, executives will acknowledge the importance of a brand and other intangible assets, but won't be confident explaining exactly how they work and the value they provide. Brands are very difficult to measure and if there's no such thing as a brand in corporate accounting standards, which there isn't, you will basically have the perfect reason to be apathetic. And this is why we had to talk to Edgar, who has solved all of these problems and more. I started learning about brand strategy back in my uni days when I was referencing papers by David Aker for essays that I was writing. At the time, he was arguably the preeminent academic in this field. And while there's no shortage of brand experts now that tend to spring from the marketing communications field, there's far fewer who can prove a brand's contribution to revenue and understand maths or accounting. Edgar Baum is arguably the global leader in the field of intangible asset valuations. He has a very deep understanding of all three of these fields. Even better, he works as a consultant, as a business owner, and an academic. He's recently developed an ISO brand valuation standard and is even called as an expert witness for court cases, such as the depth of his knowledge in this area. Merging his background in financial accounting, mathematics, and marketing, he is one of the rare breed of people who doesn't have a double agenda, unlike many famous commentators that stem for the media or advertising industry. And I must warn you, if you want to cling onto your legacy beliefs and think you know how brands work, this is probably not the episode for you. And if you think that a brand is a brand design guideline document, a logo or a tagline or any of these other things, or even a 15 second emotional advertisement, this is gonna be very confronting listening. If you are a finance professional and think you know how to value companies and their assets and brand value, this could also be a humbling experience. So you have been warned. I made sure the conversation didn't go too far into the weeds here, and Edgar does a great job of bridging his statements with relatable real-life examples which help hit the point home. We discuss quite a lot in this episode. 
from what a brand is, to its components, to how it should be measured, how it produces value, the future of brands in modern economies, why people buy, and even why Tesla's market cap is skyrocketing. If you don't learn something from this episode, you haven't been listening. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Edgar Baum. Thanks for coming on the show, Edgar. How are you doing tonight? I'm, I'm doing well. I'm doing Sweet. well. Great. Who are you? What do you do? And what's been your journey so far in maybe one minute? All right. I'll give you the, uh, the quick version on this. I run a company called Avasta Incorporated. What are we doing at Avasta? Well, the, the name of the company means to discover. And what I've gone and done is from day one, we've gone and integrated mathematics into the work that we do. We're heavily biased around going and making our expertise available. So I've been a proponent of writing open and public standards for more than half a decade in my life. I've been an academic lecturing a couple of times a year or for a semester um, at the graduate level, essentially trying to go and get brand managers and agency people to be able to understand brands from a measured point of view and go and really shatter the myth that brands are not measurable. And, and in the process, um, what we have become as a company in the past uh, 15, no, 17 months now is I've realized that we are an, uh, an expertise amplifier. We go and take our clients and make them even better at what they are. They're able to understand their customers better. That gives them a competitive advantage. Um, if we're involved in transactions, we're able to go and prepare them better for being able to sell themselves. Um, if they're trying to make an acquisition, we're able to go and help them identify where the synergy is so they don't just pay for the acquisition and wait for it to go and make money. But you know, if I buy it and I inject cash into it, where should I go and inject that money so that I'm able to leverage an even higher return than what I went and paid as a premium for the company in the first place? So it's this interesting relationship that's there. And I keep getting pulled more and more into expert witness work in terms of uh, helping to resolve court disputes, um, being able to go and ascribe a value to a lot of intangibles. And um, for me, it's just exciting to be able to pass on the knowledge that I have and uh, in the process, um, go and see what uh, either former students or former clients have been able to go and do with their own business and, have, and be successful. That's great. And um, on that note, that's why I'm talking to you, um, because I view you as one of the sort of experts worldwide about this. You know, first question, I know you probably get asked this a lot, but what is a brand? How would you describe it to someone really simply? <laughs> you, you, you started with the loaded question right off the bat. So, <laughs> So he, 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 I'm going to go and give you the question that many people don't like hearing as the answer. Um, the brand is what the brand consumer goes and makes it. And then you as the brand seller, right? The seller of that underlying service or product, you now have to be responsible for what it has become in the marketplace. The era of artificially going and creating brands and having people consume them as you intended them to be consumed is over. So that would be my, my take on it. So a lot of the measurement that we go and do is to go and identify from the customer's perspective, right? Not, not just one who's already buying your products or services, but from call it the customer with a capital C, you know, does brand even matter in your category? And you might have a percentage of the marketplace. They couldn't really care what your brand is, what your promise is, what your mission is, what your vision is. You know, were you involved in the, uh, you know, 
in the uh, in the most recent economic scandal and how you went and recovered from it, or were you affiliated with somebody politically? There's just a bunch of people they don't care. <laughs> but for the ones that do care, all of a sudden it's really material, and there isn't one brand in the marketplace. And the the part that I really had to go and eat my words on last year, nine months after starting Avasta and teaching uh, dozens of students um, on how to go and implement the brand evaluation guide uh, from the ISO uh, that we've been developing, sorry, the standard from the ISO that we've been developing a guide for, um, I had to eat my words because I'm like, there isn't a most representative description of the brand in the marketplace because it's almost impossible to even find a majority representation of it. So you got to go and add up all the little pieces and try and serve those groups to the best of your ability. And some groups are either rich enough that you can afford to target them specifically. And not that it's just like the wealthiest people in the world, but I mean like they're rich enough in that they're giving you a large chunk of their wallet to your brand, not just in the offering that you provide, but in their whole disposable income or, you know, uh, 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 attributable income to it uh, and go from there. So what is a brand today? Um, it sits in the hearts and minds of people, but you have to go and measure what the best representation is in the public at large. And okay. that is challenging, but it is doable and it requires thought. It's not simple to do it, but the answer is simple when you finish it. So does a brand consist of like basic components that you can name, like if you wanted to dumb it down? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So if I go and take a look at it, um, uh, so here's some things that I would go and say to take a look at. So a brand is not a trademark, yet the trademark is necessary to have as a shorthand to trigger those memories, those affiliations that are there. Um, great example of it would be like the Nike trademark. Like they don't need to have the Nike name with it. They've gone and become so synonymous with their swoosh or even with just the tagline, just do it, that you're able to go and get it across. So in that situation, you need to be able to go and have something that's relatable. So you, it either needs to be a logo, it needs to be a name, uh, it needs to be some kind of a manifestation of you in the marketplace. A great example in the ultra luxury good spaces, there's some now, some luxury uh, manufacturers, they don't even put their brand on the product. The product is the brand. Hmm. And then if you go and take a look at, um, in, you know, in, in the car space, you don't need to see the Ferrari logo to see that it's a Ferrari. You don't need to know that it's a Porsche 911 to know that it's a, a Porsche 911. You don't need to, you know, get close to it and see that logo mm -hmm. to confirm, oh, yes, yes, yeah, this is the Porsche version of that car that I like. Um, so I think that part I think is very critical. Um, I think because it's so unconscious, we sometimes forget the importance of it because people will get turned away by negative representations or mixed or confusing representations of the visuals um, and the taglines that are there. So that's one. I think the second thing that is really critical is what's your association with your offering? So if you're not able to go and get that across, that's really critical. It's easy when you're going and selling one product that is very clearly to go and delineate from somebody else but as you get into more and more complicated environments, how do you go and convey that offering? And what, uh, what I'm noticing from the work that I've been doing with clients from the, the, you know, the, the business professionals taking my graduate course, doing it in, in their day-to-day -day life, applying the standard, is that you are having to become responsible for measuring the ecosystem that you've built 
or the ecosystem that you're trying to encroach upon. And, and what I mean by that you're trying to encroach upon is there are very few brands, very few industries that are incremental new across everybody in society, meaning that as their purchasing power increases, they're going and collectively going and saying, oh, I got to go and buy this new thing, but I'll keep my spending the same on everything else that I was doing. It's almost non-existent today. Mm -hmm. So there's always some kind of a substitution effect that's going on. So you got to be clear, what are you here for? Are you trying to win wallet share of like, I want to go and win wallet share on how much people are comfortable spending on, on takeout coffee every month. Okay, good. Well, you are a takeout coffee company and you're going to got to, you got to make that offering so clear that people just, you know, get as close to hundred percent of it coming to you. But what if you're more than a takeout coffee company? You know, what if you're also selling booze like Starbucks in some locations, you're also selling food. Um, your, your takeout, but you can do delivery. Um, you can also go and buy the product in stores. So are you really Starbucks, the, the takeout company, or are you now Starbucks, the experience company? And what I think is happening with some organizations is, is that they get attached to the brand as they designed it. And then they have customers who go and consume it, not as it's intended design. This kind and of they're not me. responsible for it. Sorry, just interrupt there. That kind of reminds me of uh, the discussion going with like Tesla, whose you know market cap is skyrocketing, and they're like, "We're not a car company." And then other people are like, "Oh, they're a battery company." And then you know, Tesla themselves are probably don't think of themselves as either. So, is that what you're referring to? Uh, Tesla is a great example of seeing it happen in real time, hmm. um, in terms of what's there, um, and it's it's a fascinating story because. It's valuation versus all the other car companies in the world, right? It's now worth more than any other car company in the world, um, unless, of course, it might have been very volatile the past 48 hours since I last looked at the stock price. Um, but let's assume that it is the most valuable car company in the world. So what its, go its value there is predicated on the promise of a future. And I think what is going and happening with brands today that are effective today is that they've captured what is the promise that their customer base are living into. So there's a, um, there's a collection of people who've gone and talked about a brand as a promise, a brand as a promise consistently met, uh, you know, brand joining a, a tribe, a you know, join the tribe. Mm -hmm. And, and I think they all have degrees of truth to them. But when you go and take a look at, at brands, that truth only applies to the segment of the marketplace where brand actually is relevant to that audience. So I really got, if I went and put like a first warning to all people who are involved with brands, whether you're a founder of a company or you're the CMO or the head of brand or a brand manager, the entire marketplace is not your customer. The first thing that I encourage um, everybody that I work with to do is, who are you not selling to? And they're like, what? Like, oh, well, we haven't been able to sell to this. No, no, no. Who do you not want to sell to? Who do you not want to buy your products and services? And that is, I think, an un, not, not asked enough because it's going to go and dictate what the brand is in the marketplace for you. Well, it's funny if, if you don't mind me interjecting. So one of our earlier conversations was about how brands are defining their own categories and the direct competitors that they believe they're competing with is often very far removed from the truth and how the customers view 
their category and customers don't really view categories. Um, so uh, it was interesting to hear your talk on that. Is that sort of what you're referring to here? I, I, yeah, so that's a, that's a great example. So let's go back to the, the Tesla um, as a great example, right? So they essentially went and did what had been attempted for since the dawn of vehicles in the 1880s, which is to go and have an electric car. Um, the difference is that they went and made good looking electric cars, but they didn't try and go and make an existing car electric. Instead, if you really think about why people love Teslas, it's not they're like, oh my gosh, this car is so amazing. It doesn't use gasoline. They go and rave about the fact that the inside of it is modern. The ability to drive it is completely different. The interface inside it. So if you go and actually take a look at what is giving their, their premium and their differentiation, is all the stuff that is not a better version of the status quo. There's something unique to the experience. There's something different about it. And I think that's, that's the piece that's going and missing. I, I, I did work with a brand last year um, that was going to get retired after an acquisition. And um, you know, what did we go and discover that was um, you know, giving them a, a, a premium, not a price premium, but a consumption premium, from their very loyal customer base was that the customers felt comfortable going to their locations and regularly buying their goods and services. And you're like, well, oh, of course that makes sense. How do you measure comfort? Yeah. Well, what, what was driving the comfort? What was driving the comfort was, is I went there shopping in April and John was there and you know, John remembered me because I was there, three weeks earlier making a purchase. And then I'd show up, you know, two months later, I went traveling and it came back and oh my gosh, hey look, it's John and it's uh, Elaine uh, over there. It's like, oh hey Elaine, it's been a while, how is it? And, and, and how were they going and facilitating that there was a continuity between the people who worked at their locations and the customers who were coming in? Um, because they owned all their locations. They were going and providing a consistent training regimen and it wasn't even conscious. Mm -hmm. It was from the previous regime that sold their company to this larger buyer. And they were going to shut the whole thing down and license the whole, all of the locations. And all of their competitors were running licensed um, locations. So all the staff were transient. They were just turned over all the time. There was no skin in the game for the people. Um, the staff was getting paid more. They'd been trained better. Um, and you had that comfort and continuity and it's in an, in an industry where experience makes or breaks your next purchase. I had the same thing happening, um, in work that one of my students did with a prominent retailer that was international. We were able to go and identify, well, not me, but you know, the student with the guidance from the course, um, was able to identify that, um, when they, they, you know, they couldn't apply it in a 12 week course for the whole global organization but they did have this interesting dynamic that they had two locations that based on their internal model should have run about the same profitability. Yet one was way more profitable than the other. And so they said, okay, we're going to go and test those two locations. We're going to apply the brand evaluation model. We're going to build one brand evaluation model for each location. And we're going to geofence it with the customers that are there. And what did they go and discover in one location? They had way lower turnover. So the customers, kept coming back to that location over going to other locations that may have been more convenient. So that one location was actually cannibalizing from the rest of their retail network because they had more favorable employee interactions. Wow. 
didn't so show like a- up anywhere. Didn't show up anywhere in their operating model. And then people are like, well, that's not brand. That's uh, that's uh, you know, that's your staff. I'm like, yeah, that's your staff expressing the brand as your customers want it because the customers are looking for, hey, it's John. John knows what I like buying every morning. And I don't, I just need to show up and open the door and they're like, hey, I got you. Mm-hmm. And they're already writing out your order for you. And you just show up and they're like, oh, we've already figured out how much it's going to cost. Like those moments of time, the fact that you're recognized as somebody of value and not because you have a loyalty card or because you pay a price premium, but because they went and saved you time. They, may, they recognized you. And here's the problem with it. People are like, oh, give me some brand tips that I can go and use. Those two case studies probably don't apply to 80% of other brands because they don't have the same revenue interaction with the customer base. So understand your revenue interaction and go and determine what makes the brand in that. Are you experience driven? Go and put your bias towards making, providing great experiences. Are you driven by the fact that your stuff never breaks or never has a problem? Boy, you got to make sure that you never cut corners, right? Because the minute you cut corners, it's not going to be a you know, 3% reduction in your revenue. It's going to be a 30% reduction in your revenue. Um, and, and that part you know, go, goes there um, hand in hand all the time. Perhaps Apple's struggling with that right now, yeah? You know, it's, I think it's an interesting thing. There's, um, I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm talking to you from a new device from Apple that I went and bought. And it's the first time in five and a half years that I went and bought a new MacBook. And I must admit, it was insanely easy and straightforward to go and migrate to the new environment. And I remember some of the features that I went and looking at the specs, I'm like, oh, oh, do I really need this? Like, would I've paid a couple of hundred dollars less to not have this thing? And, and I got to admit, their integration is damn good. But what did I like the most? I did not have to rebuild my interface. What my body language was already used to. I literally just got a better screen, a better keyboard, more hard drive space and a faster processor. But what my brain and my body was used to was there. Now, if they go and mess with this with me in five years time, I'm probably going to go and struggle with it. But if kind of some of the things that have gone and made, made it for me are there, it's there. So kind of my last personal point that I kind of want to go and put in what makes a brand is that the brand is unconscious. You have succeeded with a brand when your customers don't have to think about what they're consuming. Their natural response is that the category affiliation is with your brand, not with your offer. And that is a, there's a lot of subtlety in there because a lot of businesses are in the business of, of developing offers, not building brands. And, and what I would go and say is you've done it right when your offer is the brand and your brand is the offer and they're synonymous. And trust me, your customer base is smart enough to know they have alternatives. They're just going to wait for you to screw up before they look at the alternatives. So I suppose on the flip side, what isn't a brand? Like what do people confuse a brand with? Oh, I, I really think that they go and confuse it that placing a logo on something that's somewhat like somewhat similar or generally identical is what's going to go and give the brand benefit. Um, I think we're going and seeing it right now a lot with a lot of the legacy CPG firms. Um, where the underlying product isn't really dramatically different from, call it the house brand uh, or the store brand um, that is being developed. 
and um, and the customer bases are becoming smarter. Like keep in mind, right? Like what was the function of branding um, uh, decades ago? The function of branding was uh, was a, a consistency. It was a way of going and conveying quality. If you go back to what brands were for, they were to go and convey quality. I go and buy this thing that has been branded, you know, by John, the, the, the shoemaker. I know that this shoe, which looks really similar to Harry, the shoemaker's shoe, because they're all using the same standardized template for shoemaking, but there's just something about John's that are better. And if I see that it's, you know, stamped by John, I might even be able to sell it to somebody else for a few pence a few years down the road when I no longer want to wear them. And that has pivoted. That has really gone and pivoted to in today's environment. Um, um, that is no longer the case. It's now become a table stake. That quality just should be there. And, and people will, I think, will have, look, we're like elephants. We have very long memories about bad things that affected us personally. Um, not so good on, on the most recent good experience that we had unless it solved a really bad one. Okay, so I just want to interject there because you mentioned quality becoming table stakes is like a benchmark. Like if you're not offering high quality, then you just don't even get considered anyway. But then you know, there's this discussion in the branding uh, community about purpose and having a story and like that was the buzzword of the last five years. Um, you know, where is it going now then? How are brands competing? So I think because brands are no longer differentiators, uh, differentiators on consumption, but I, I kind of go back to the conversation around the ecosystem. Um, and a great example of an organization that is experiencing um, called the conflicts of this right now is Facebook. So Facebook doesn't just have a brand for a place where you go and put your time for social media. Um, Facebook is also very much a brand where some of the top talent in the world wants to go and work. Mm -hmm. So now you go and have two different elements that are there. You have the brand as an acquirer or a facilitator of talent. And I'll tell you this, for Facebook, it is a lot less expensive for them to go and hire top talent than somebody who's not Facebook um, or is not another hot brand. Um, I was working with an organization um, where I found out that um, you know, they were not a sexy organization to work for. You know, pardon the, the kind of like association with it, but it was like, it was a very kind of bland meat and potatoes sector of the economy if you went and asked the average person uh -huh. and um, you know if memory serves me i think they had to go and pay half a year's executive salary if not a year's executive salary in acquisition costs like not even just paying it as a bonus to bring them like to go and find people and convince them and then they had to pay them a premium for uh, call it a Wall Street job or a or a London job or a Sydney job or a Toronto job at another prominent company of similar size, right? So it's it just people didn't know to go and work there and, you know, their comfort was, well, we'll pay you more for the same experience as a place that you want to go to. So going back to the Facebook uh, example, you now have the dilemma of, well, how do they go and make their money? Well, they go and make their money because you went and, and spent a lot of your time on it a lot of your time on it is worth advertising dollars for advertisers who go in and integrate things into your feed. And, you know, based on some of the things that are going on in the United States today, there's a lot of employees that are going and saying, I don't agree with what I, you know, we allow you to go into your feed and they're being public about it. So in the moment, is it going and costing Facebook billions of dollars? God, no. 
but it started to be chipped at. And if it's not addressed, then that next generation of people that want to go and work in Facebook, maybe they're going to go and take an offer from somebody else. And guess what? Facebook may, I'm not saying it will, but they may go and start experiencing the exact same that they, thing that they did with Apple, with Google, with Amazon, to Wall Street, where all of a sudden the top talent, regardless of discipline, was starting to go to them. Hmm. And they're going and doing it with the, you know, the top end CPG firms that used to get some of the top MBA talent or some of the top marketing talent. And all of a sudden they would just go to Facebook and their, and their similar companies. If Facebook starts losing that talent and that drive and that mission and those values, that's where you're going to go and get there. So mission, vision, values, those are not for your consumers. Those are really for going and getting the talent that you want to be working for your brand and, and making those offerings out there in the world. If you have to worry about turnover or losing some of your top talent, that's a problem. So with uh, that said, doesn't um, the people you hire then, uh, 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 how do I say, uh, project the brand that sometimes the customers will notice, especially in service delivery anyway. So is oh, it indirectly part of the brand uh, on the consumer perception side? It, it totally is. I remember getting on a plane years ago um, and sitting beside me and my wife was another couple. And I noticed that, uh, and like, like the guy was like shorts, golf shirt, clearly going on vacation like we were. Um, but for some reason, he had still gone and put on the pin of the financial institution that he was working for. And um, so, you know, strike up the conversation. We're on the same age, et cetera. And, you know, very quickly it goes to, you know, hey, so uh, can I ask you who, do you, who do you bank with, Edgar? And I'm like, well, this is a bit of a surprise because I know who he works for or he is a really big fan otherwise, right? And his wife's like, God, no, don't. Like, we're on vacation. Don't start this again, right? And, and he's like, no, 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 I really want to know. So we get into this conversation as to who I bank with. Like, have I banked with his bank before? And, and like, the guy's just like a total advocate, right? He's like, he's just totally in love with it, et cetera. And this was a, a financial institution which was very bright, doing a lot of stuff, a lot of modernizing. They were the risk takers, but they were doing it well in their industry and really differentiating versus their peers. Fast forward 12 to 15 years, they do not have that same shine to them. They kind of lost it. And, you know, can you pinpoint to one reason? Not really. Can you pinpoint to one reason why they were shining back then? Not really. But was it being expressed by their staff? Heck yeah. Are there staff today that I know from that financial institution that are very enthusiastic and love working there? Yes. Have they had a turnover that is six times higher than when I had that person sit next to me on the plane? Yes. So clearly, it is not cohesive. Clearly, there's changes. They're not just generational shifts. There's actually an exiting of people who loved building out that financial institution in the marketplace. So these are things that there are to go and take a look at. And I think if you're a business leader today, if you're not taking into your account your brand as a holistic asset that integrates how your offering gets to the market. How does your offering get to the market? It gets there through your employees. If you're going and selling it through middlemen like retailers or distributors, well, you sure as heck want to make sure that those people are on brand because otherwise you're going to go and have a United Airlines moment. What yeah, happened yeah. with United Airlines? Legally, it wasn't United Airlines who went and took the, the person off the plane. It was a legal subsidiary. No, it wasn't a legal subsidiary. It was an independent legal company licensing 
United Airlines identity and sub-licensing the routes that United had rights to. So if you go and look at it, it was the United brand, but delivered by XYZ Corp and their staff. So there was actually no liability on the part of United, but the marketplace didn't go and care. They're not going and saying, oh, well, oh, you know, it's really too bad for United that these guys um, were such bad licensees of the brand because, you know, I love United and, uh, uh, I'm, you know, I'm so sorry and you can guarantee that my money is going to be there for you. Like, God, no, they don't have the attention pan to, to go and figure that out. And, and that's your delivery mechanism going and screwing up for you. Uh, and and that's where uh, <laughs> that's where it is because you as a customer you don't have the attention span or the legal knowledge or the accounting knowledge or the, oh my gosh like this thing's actually registered in Luxembourg and then the money really the Cayman's oh god I gotta get my mother on this conversation did you know mom that um, that this brand that we thought was well, this one cohesive thing regardless of where we bought it is actually like seventy five different legal entities like that's not the case at all. Hey, so, so you bring up a good point here. I mean, you kind of touched on a bit about um, biases in the decision-making process of how um, businesses and internal staff um, manage and view their brand. I mean, are you, you're talking about some legacy things that may not be applicable now, especially in CPG, which I've noticed as well. Um, what are the sort of main legacy things or biases that you see happening? Um, bias. That... That, that is the, the biggest thing. So well, from um, a perspective, like from an internal versus customer perspective. Oh yeah, is that- it, is, it is the number one problem inside organizations today. If I go and take a look at all of the work that has been done um, in my graduate teachings um, on, the, on applying the brand evaluation standard, um, I'll take case in point, uh, one of the semesters, um, 18, um, sorry, 24 students completed the work inside their organizations or with an organization that they were affiliated with. Two of them were able to get to final delivery with buy-in from everybody inside their organization. Um, A prominent global company that shall remain nameless but has had certain um, uh, high-profile negative experiences. So I think there's enough of companies there where you can start kind of guessing. Uh, Their legal department shut the whole thing down. We're not going to have you go and uh, get in touch with our customers to find out what they think about our brand. And it's like, excuse me, uh, uh-huh. I'm the brand manager and I'm trying to go and understand if the advertising work that we do, the marketing work that we do, the sponsorship work that we do plays a different role in our customer's experience. And like, no, 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 we're not comfortable with this. It's like, so legal goes and shuts down the company from actually being able to engage with their own customers to see, are we delivering the experience that you're wanting to? Because by the way, we're in the news a lot for a lot of negatives. Is the things that we're doing to try and address these negatives actually working or not? Or are we just like, you know, shooting in the dark? So that was the, the frustrating experience for that one, right? Um, and then uh, the, the one that was the most predominant answer was, oh, I don't believe these results. It's like, what? What do you mean you don't believe in these results? It's like, did you go and like um, have some kind of like your own personal um, ethos document that says that the results aren't this way, you're just not going to go and, and take them? Like, this is like, financial results from inside your business. This is hey, statistically. There is a perfect cartoon that sums this up that Tom Fishburne does called the marketoonist. And there's these board members, yes. uh, someone presenting these board members sitting around a board table and someone's presenting like, oh, like, obviously there's two choices here and there's a bar graph and number A is like the obvious choice. And then the, 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 yeah. <laughs> the person in the board table goes, well, I, my expert advice is going to dis- disagree with that or something like to that tune. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's hilarious. So you, yeah, you're talking you, about you that. You totally nailed it. 
you, you totally nailed it. And I think this is the problem that's going on. And like, I have these students and I'm looking at their stuff and like, you know, these are brand professionals. These are people who've gone and worked five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years in the respective space. Some of them are managing multiple brands because they're working at an agency and they're taking this course and trying to make a difference for their clients. And it's like, you don't believe it. And it's like, and it's like, yeah, so I, I, I just, I just haven't seen it. And I'm like, what? Like, how can this be the case? And, and I think that's one of the curses that is there. And if you as an organization are really um, kind of stuck on this, it's a problem. And, and, and kind of, again, on that bias point, I'll, I'll really go and give you an, an, an example that was just really went and hit me um, on this. So one of the students, uh, uh, a brilliant young woman, um, having a, a lot of responsibility inside the organization that they were working for, um, and this is in the financial services space, um, in that financial services space, they went and decided that they were going to um, come out with a product that specifically uh, was um, uh, towards a segment of the female population. And they viewed it as a proactive thing that they were going to go and do. It's like, hey, we have actually gone and seen that you consume our category from a different way. We've heard you, you've asked for a different way to be served. Like, it sounds like totally on brand, right? Hey. I have a, a significant share of the marketplace. They feel like the general services we're providing as a financial institution aren't doing it. And here we are, we're gonna go and do it for you. So here we go, we've launched this new sub-brand. You get to go and have the services your way. Sounds like it should work, right? Until you then go and realize that there was a lot of patriarchal messaging that was coming out, so that wasn't on brand. And then the other problem about it was is um, you haven't gone and acknowledged that you went and ignored us as a gender for decades. Um, and that is actually an important part to go and do because your master brain is not associated with what this new promise is. In fact, we're not seeing it anywhere else. So it's almost like a lip service of, of going and doing this. So these are challenging questions, especially for legacy brands and my current hypothesis is the reason why so many legacy brands are struggling is because they've accrued too many negative associations in the marketplace that are not reflected in their financial reporting. Mm -hmm. And the brand evaluation standard calls for doing that work. And I was working with a financial, I was not with a financial institution, I was working with an institution last year who we went and discovered that certain legal challenges that the organization had experienced in previous years that from an accounting point of view had been resolved had not been resolved from the perspective of the market. It's like, well, but you had a class action lawsuit. You guys went and paid out millions of dollars. I was in that lawsuit. My cousin was in that lawsuit. And then, well, but they've moved on as the leadership. It's like, well, hold on, hold on. Like you have upset people, right? <laughs> and, and heaven forbid that they had come out with an offering that was kind of like very closely associated with what they got sued for in the first place. So that's, that's kind of the uh, dilemma that I think is there for organizations and um, measure it. If you're not measuring it, you don't actually know what you're managing. Okay. That's one of my later questions. So hold that thought. Um, hang on okay. a minute. I've got an internet unstable thing again. Okay, we're back. Um, who are the people in control of the brand in the organization? And I know this is open-ended and I've done that for a reason. Could you repeat that question? Oh, who in the organization is in control of the brand? Um, 
Oh, that's a loaded question. I don't think anybody is in control of it. I think somebody needs to be responsible for um, leading the charge and understanding how the brand is viewed in its components versus as a collective, right? Like your brand is not a tagline. It is not your five key principles. It is much more complex than that. And then uh, I would say there needs to be a brand champion who goes and measures it. What is it out there? What is it inside? And then what's the discrepancy between the two? Uh, some of the most valuable um, work that we've gone and, and had our clients share with us is when we've applied the standard and had them go and take a look at uh, internal stakeholders and what they think makes the brand uh, purchased in the marketplace and then looked at what the actual marketplace went and said was the varied reasons for why they went and bought it. Frequently, it was extremely different. Mm -hmm. um, and we did work earlier this year where um, with an organization um, where the, the leadership um, and the licensees um, actually weren't aligned on the overall objectives of the business. And when you looked at the compensation model of the licensees versus the compensation model of the parent company, it totally made sense as to why they would be in some cases aligned and, and in most cases not aligned on the business objectives of the brand as a whole. Yeah, interesting. So um, we're touching on valuation here, which is something that obviously is your core specialty. Uh, and I really want to know like, um, how valuable is a brand proportionally to the organization? Because we're talking about an intangible asset here. So um, yeah, you've done a lot of measurement around this, you know, proportionally, do you find it, obviously it would probably vary from company to company, but is it becoming more valuable or, or less valuable? So there's two schools of thoughts that are coming out on this thing. The, the brand in terms of its, call it isolation towards the traditional legal treatment or uh, financial treatment as a logo or as a trademark or as a marketing asset, that is declining in value. Um, but what we're seeing is the system that the brand is um, dependent on is increasing the value. And if you remove the brand from the system, the system in many cases disintegrates and loses its value um, very much so. Um, I, I'm, I'm privy to um, an organization that went and, um, and did a very robust assessment of their brand and they went and discovered that their, their trademarks were really not worth very much on their own um, if it didn't come associated with the long-term contracts um, that were there with the country rights so or the retailer rights that they were selling through. So I could go and sell you my trademark, which is quote unquote the brand, though from an accounting point of view, there is no such thing as a brand, by the way. This is very important. Mm -hmm. This is one of the big problems that we have. There is no such thing as a brand in either US GAAP or under IFRS, which is the International uh, Accounting Standard. There is no such thing. It's used as a shorthand by the auditors. Like we'll call this indefinite lived intangible a brand for convenience, but there's no actual such thing as a brand, uh, which might explain some aspects of the uh, CFO organization who may be trapped into thinking that there isn't one, but I don't want to uh, pre uh, presume for that. So going back to the example, um, they went and realized that, well, okay, well, if, the, if, if we sell the brand and the buyer doesn't get the rights to the distribution network, um, 
then uh, then the brand loses a lot of its value because the distribution network has value. Well, how did that distribution network have value? Well, because those those retailers and those distributors want to be able to sell my brand. Oh, okay, good, good, good. Uh, so why do they want to be able to sell my brand in exchange for which they gave multi-year contracts? Oh, they want to be able to sell my brand because I'm reliably able to go and make my product available uh, with those brands and trademarks and logos and taglines, et cetera, uh, to them. Um, and how am I able to do that? Oh, well, because I have gone and set up a really fail-safe production environment um, where I'm not dependent on one location to go and manufacture uh, my goods. I can, you know, I've decentralized it. I can, you know, if there's a breakdown in one plant, I can go and manufacture it in another one very quickly. So, you know, my retail customers and my distributors who, you know, their livelihood is, is partially dependent on selling my brand, they're there. So if, if, if I'm not selling that system to the buyer, uh, you know, can the buyer easily go and replicate my, manufacturing environment? Uh, well, the answer is no. Okay, so the brand is now worth even less. And as a result, the infrastructure on its own is worth a, a lot less too, because that infrastructure was really set up for these brands to be sold to the distributors and the retailers so that they could go and get to the consumers. It's like, okay, okay. Well, well, why did you go and set up this manufacturing ability in the first place and set up all these distributors and et cetera? Well, it's because we have all these consumers that really like consuming these brands. It's like, oh, so if this brand is not available to be consumed the way that our customer base expects to be able to consume them, then the brand is actually not worth that much. That is correct. Okay. So, so, so what you've gone and told me is. Sorry, just interject here. So just in summary, you're saying um, a brand is a collection of parts, but those collection of parts can't always be separated from one another. Yeah, and, that, and that's one of the big parts, is they're not separable. So the best way to describe that situation is one plus one plus one plus one equals 40. Okay, okay. Interesting. So you were talking about like- And um, that, is, that is a very difficult notion because it's the net, you have to calculate the network effect of what allows the brand to generate the revenue in the first place. It is not separable. And this is where I have a lot of issues with how uh, our accounting standards around brands and intangibles are, they go and call for separability. And this is why the stuff that you can't separate gets rolled into goodwill and you get convoluted values ascribed to goodwill that is there. Um, and if, you know, my, my personal professional take is if you are the CEO or the CFO of your company, you should not have a goodwill line item for your internal corporate valuation model. If you do, you're putting your business and your shareholders at risk. Okay, I think this is really interesting because I mean, from an accounting perspective, um, I wouldn't call myself accountant, but I need to know the elementary side of it. Um, you know, you you are looking at things independent from one another, cost centers, um, you know, on the ledger. That's that's the the way people view businesses and how you value them. So um, it doesn't always account for those uh, that synergistic effect between those components, does it? It, it does not. So, and the and the brand evaluation standard, the call it the unexpected outcome of it is that by building the framework as the standard calls for it, you are now able to start measuring the system effects, which you would not be able to do using a traditional accounting approach. So you have a systematized approach that allows you to calculate the network benefit or the network hindrance, because it will also show you the compound effect of the negatives in your organization as well. Yeah, that are hey, associated with your brand. 
I think this is really um, the thing that I really want to ask you because there's this um, graph going around on social media and, um, you know, the proportion of companies back in the past that used to have a proportion of intangible and tangible assets. And um, over mm -hmm. time, it sort of goes up and to the right. And obviously, tangible assets you know, decrease or stay the same and intangibles just go through the roof. So, you know, in effect, that is saying, hey, intangible parts of business is the most valuable. In fact, like the, the majority of value of modern businesses. So, um, do you see um, current governance and, and executives viewing it from that perspective and even the finance um, organizations themselves who are valuing these companies? Or do you think there's a, a lot of legacy? I call them the, uh, the tangible generation, you know, who need to have things printed down on paper and see it and sometimes can't get their head around the uh, crux of intangible value. Um, so the, the short answer is that too many are stuck in the past. Um, I published something last year where we went and did an inflation adjusted calculation of um, the component value of the S&P 500. So the standard of course 500, 500 called most valuable companies in America. And what we went and discovered was that in real dollars, so adjusted for inflation, mm -hmm. um, tangible assets have declined um, as a share of business value um, in absolute, uh, in real terms from where they were in the 1980s. So if, if you went and, and, um, and had, you know, a million dollars worth of tangible assets in the 1980s to go and drive your business, you were able to get to the same business performance with only $900,000 in tangible asset value in 1980s dollars. Wow. So we've become much more efficient at using our tangible assets, but because we've had inflation, the dollar amounts that we see looks like these tangible assets are worth, you know, like $4 million. But if you look at it from an inflation adjusted point of view, they're actually worth less than a million bucks uh, compared to today. Um, so we're trapped in not doing our own business assessments uh, in reality. And, and it's a problem also for brand management because especially, again, going back to the longevity question, um, uh, you know, great example is, uh, is some conversations with my wife. She's like, oh my God, this thing is so expensive. Like I used to pay like $4 for this thing. Why does it now cost seven? I'm like, honey, that thing cost $4 in the 1990s. One thing I do want to explicitly mention, you touched on this before, was um, you know, within the marketing advertising industry, there's these uh, affiliated organizations, let's call them, that are being bought and sold. Um, Cantor, Millwood Brown, Brand Z, Interbrand, um, that value brands. And there's another one you, you formerly worked for. Um, and they all value them a bit differently. Mm -hmm. And there's like a score of like, what's the most valuable brand? And you see this stuff go around on social media and in white papers and, and that yeah. kind of thing. Um, you know, should we be listening to those organizations or where do you think those um, brand measurement firms are sort of falling over with the new reality? So here's my take as somebody who worked for a brand valuation firm and then who separately did academic research on brand valuation publications. They are collectively onto something in how much brand at its non-accounting and legal treatment plays a role. The problem is, is that they all kind of obfuscate what are they actually going and talking about in terms of brand value. So, um, you know, uh, brand finance as an organization is really going and taking a look at, well, 
you know, if I tried to go and sell this brand, uh, how, how much of a business benefit can that brand provide? So it's really kind of like, you know, will the tax authorities recognize my ability to extract that value after the sale? Because if they don't, then I'm going to go and have operating damages to the business. So that's kind of like the brand finance take. And hello, David Hague, if you're watching this, we can have another conversation on this. Um, if I go and take a look at inner brand, they're going and taking a look at the realizable, the realizable value of the brand if it was unhindered. And, and that's a different interpretation of it, right? It's like, well, look, if I didn't have to go and deal with all the competitor pressures and things like that, how much could my brand be worth? Like if I nailed it, right? We did good strategy, good investment. All of our dollars that we put behind the brand were efficient. Um, how much could it be worth? And so it's a different application, same kind of concept called brand valuation, but you're directing it towards different purposes. Um, then you go and take a look at something like the European Brand Institute goes and publishes and what they're going and taking a look at, well, I would, my personal interpretation and that they've been gracious to allow me to look under the hood in terms of their models and how it works. And, and they're going and looking at it, well, what's the impaired value of the brand? Like if you went and screwed the brand up, how much value would it go and lose? Okay. So we're going to add that lost value back to the business value. So if you, you had a $10 billion company and you screw the brand up and it would be worth $4 billion to somebody without the brand, then it's like clearly the brand is adding 6 billion bucks back to it. And that is a very business take on it, right? Like if you go and take a look at Hermes or LVMH or any of those luxury brands, if you go and have like a, a crisis, a brand crisis for those brands, are their manufacturing plants or facilities really worth any more than 10 or 15 cents on the dollar? Probably not. So a lot of it is on that expectation of being able to do so. And then you go and take a look at kind of like the Millward Brown publications and, and how they're going and looking at it. And what they're going and saying is, look, if like if everything worked out and everybody had access to this brand, this is how much it would be worth. And, and, and this is something I only really kind of clued into the past two years because I, I, I really struggled with when they would go and publish the brand being worth more than the entire enterprise value of the company. And it's like, well, they're going and saying, it was like, look, like, you know, give it time. This brand is going to be worth a ton of money. And in some of the cases, not in all, but in some of the cases, they were more accurate than anybody else. Like brands really did grow into that value. The problem is, is they didn't really convey it that way. So if you're looking at it from a sector point of view, it makes sense. If you're looking at it from a similar size of company point of view, it makes sense. But I struggle with what it has turned into where there's a naturally strong bias that the most valuable brands in the world also happen to be tied to the most valuable businesses in the world in almost all circumstances. Mm -hmm. It's just like a natural result. So I, what I would personally be preferred is to know is who, which companies are the most brand dependent, like what percentage of their brand is predicated, um, uh, sorry, what percentage of their business is predicated on their brand. Mm -hmm. That to me would be, um, a, a much more interesting conversation that I can take an action on as a business leader rather than going and, and 
getting into the trap, well, I'm never going to go and get a $100 billion brand. My business is worth $100 million. Hey, and that raises a good point about Peter Thiel, what he says about uh, the startup community um, or you know, businesses in general. He's, he makes this a blanket statement that, hey, just don't worry about your brand until you hit 50 mil ARR, right? Um, mm-hmm. So do you think that statement has premise or do you think the businesses should be looking at their brand from the onset, but perhaps uh, not investing as much internal resources on it um, than they would in the future? So here's my counter argument to the fact that you shouldn't be concerned on that. How much of your marketplace did you burn down to the ground to hit your 50 million AR on? Because if you went and just removed participation, you got to that business growth because you just ignored your early customers or you shipped bad product or you gave bad experience, but the marketplace wasn't aware enough of the negative. So essentially, you took advantage of your lack of awareness to go and and take advantage in driving cash flow, it's going to come back to bite you in the butt. Yep. Um, so I think you need to be responsible in terms of how you get to that ARR. Because again, I'm going to go back to that in the current fiscal year, you may not see it, but the accumulation from the past five years of trying to hit that number, you've gone and left a lot of upset people um, in the marketplace and some of them will become advocates against you. So that's, that would be my, my interpretation. No, that's great. I mean, um, I've noticed um, some things about what you said anecdotally uh, and my experience too. So that's really good. I, and that brings me to what I really want to ask you, which is, um, you know, if I am a smaller business, um, let's just say private equity or, you know, one mil uh, rev a year up to the 50 mil sort of range, um, you know, what things should I be concentrating on with my brand? Like um, in the, in the media, it's uh, the advertising industry wants to think that, hey, it's all about brand awareness, get more brand awareness, you'll be fine. And then academics like Byron Sharp talking about mental availability and physical availability with your brand and he views it through those two lenses. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think that businesses should focus on at least in those initial stages? So I, I, I'm going to have to split the answer into two parts. The okay. first part is what's your ambition? So if your ambition is to kind of just maintain control of your little ecosystem, like you just want to go and have several chains of your restaurant in your city, um, or you want to go and have like, you know, you, you, you ship good, pro- good product to specialists, but you don't really have ambitions to go beyond that. In that situation, all of your focus needs to be in understanding what's the difference between the customers you've acquired, the customers you've lost, and the people who are interested in buying your products or services in the near term. That should become your number one priority. And you should be doing that if you're starting a business and you want to be able to figure out what will make people become my customers and what, will, what, will, what would um, I have, um, have me lose them. Like, what do I need to avoid doing as a business? And that is how your brand is going to be built on the backs of those customers. If you have an ambition to grow into a large, prominent organization, then one thing that I've kept coming back, and again, this is anecdotal. I haven't gone and done the academic research. And, and a lot of this is very hard to even go and do academically. But I keep noticing that in, in larger organizations, so mass consumer, mass enterprise, mass B2B, uh, there's this weird efficiency ratio that seems to be at around 40% awareness penetration into your target audience. And if you're below 40, it is in almost all cases more efficient to your bottom line to invest into awareness before you start investing into differentiation. And if you're above 40, it becomes much more efficient in going and trying to identify those niches, call it the tribes, call it the pockets of the customer bases that coalesce around 
some sub combination of your brand features or offering. And then you really want to nurture those audience, have them feel like they're special and unique. And the general public awareness of what you have is really not that much of an advantage. Like if you have a brand dashboard and your company's sitting at 85% awareness and you're judging your marketing team on getting you to 86% awareness, you're totally barking up the wrong tree. Um, but I would say at around 40% um, in, in terms of uh, um, awareness and your kind of like target or the wallet that you're trying to win, um, that seems to be that inflection point where it starts becoming efficient in targeting um, niches or specialists. Okay, that's, that's really good. Um, and look, there's a lot of diverging views in the branding industry, which you've mentioned quite eloquently. Um, if I was seeking someone's advice in terms of my branding, um, you know, brand strategist, maybe someone on the marketing side, or maybe someone like you more on the sort of financial valuation side of that. Um, for you, what are the red flags with uh, hiring someone like that? Like <laughs> someone who maybe is quite junior and not as experienced as somebody else. Um, especially having been somebody who's gone and, you know, worked more than half a decade on building a, 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 a standard way of, of validating brand measures. Um, I would say the biggest red flag that I have is stock measures where you just go and take like the top 10 brand metrics or the top 10 marketing metrics and you go and compare your performance to that. Um, my biggest red flag inside that one is impressions because I have yet to be able to go and have somebody go and show me their 186 million impressions happening. Impressions, like, do you mean with the advertising impressions or? Yeah, like, like, I, I, like go, go and show me 100 impressions. Like, I don't, I don't even need to see the 186 million that you go and say that you went and achieved. Show me the 100. How many people was that to? Was it, was it 10 impressions each to 10 people? Was it one impression to 100 people? And then, you know, what happened? Like, if you cannot go and show that one to me. So um, well, the counter, the, I'll just interject that the counter to impressions, uh, then the fallback argument is, well, it's about reach. Here's our reach figures that we pulled from, you know, 10 of our advertising suppliers and different systems and compile them all together. And hey, our reach metrics going through the roof. You know, we've got brand awareness. Yay. Um, what's the counter argument to that? So the counter argument that I have to it is, okay, as you're getting reach, how is it going and showing up, showing up on inbound? If you're still having to go and try and acquire that revenue, that means that your brand is not working for you, no matter, no matter how much money you're pushing into the reach. So that's, that's kind of my, my take on that part. Again, it's the stock approach to measuring the brand effect that I have the concern over. Um, and it's also going and looking at it solely from the function point of view that my marketing is building the brand. It's, that's, I, I, I disagree with that statement. Your role of marketing is to go and express the brand using the marketing channel, just like your customer service people are there to express the brand using the interpersonal channel, just like your call center staff is there to express the brand using the call center channel. Look at the amount of telecoms that have gone and lost billions of dollars worth of customers because they had lousy call center experiences. Everything was fine until I went and tried to renegotiate my contract, right? Like, so you, you got to really just go and figure out marketing is a function. It has a lot of money behind it. It is a tool, but it is not universal, yeah. right? You can go and build awareness without marketing. Tesla is a great example of it. Can everybody duplicate Tesla? God, no. If somebody comes and says, hey, I'm going to go and sell you a Elon Musk strategy for your brand for a million dollars, 
you should be going and like, you know, not even allowing them to finish a sentence um, because it's just not feasible. Uh, so you've got to, uh, th- that would be my take on, 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 on a lot of these different things. That's great. I mean, I just had a discussion with a customer experience uh, lady as well, who sort of explained how her profession is. It's like, it's all the touch points that the customer has over their lifetime. And that's how she views customer experience. And it's about, you know, making sure that journey or those interactions are, you know, as favorable as possible. Um, so you're saying this sort of similar thing from a branding perspective, from what I'm understanding. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, hey, uh, so we've talked about red flags, um, talked about routine mistakes, maybe that brand professionals make, uh, are there like a top three list of things you like, Hey, don't go and do this. Don't think like this. Yes. Um, here's my top three. Um, do not go and build your brand positioning in a vacuum. Um, too much of it is, um, in North America would be a term called inside baseball. I don't know what the Aussie equivalent of this would be. But it's essentially when you go and talk about the brand with yourself, amongst yourself, um, and you never actually go and take into account who's supposed to be the beneficiary in there. So if your customer is not part of the equation, that's a really big error that you're going and making. Um, so that's one. Um, the second, I think, big mistake that I'm going and uh, that I notice people going and making um, is they miss the handoff. They uh, inside the organization from the the function of, of marketing, um, activating the brand to the salesperson, picking up the brand as the common identity and then trying to get the revenue. That I'm very frequently seeing is a disconnect inside organizations where either the marketing is doing a bad job getting the brand idea across and the salespeople are very good with it and they're frustrated that there's not enough demand for their function or it's the other way around, where the marketing totally gets it, they're very good at, at knowing what their tool, what their purpose is to get the brand across, and then the salespeople are just not picking up the baton being handed off to them in, in getting the sales done. Um, so that would be the second uh, big error. And I would have to say the third biggest one is, um, and this is an existential one, I think we're a bit early on this thinking, uh, people need to be able to understand how they, why they make money. If you're not measuring why you make money and reporting on why you make money, um, that is a really big error. All of the reporting platforms that I see show how I make money, where I make money, with who I make money, but nobody's measuring why I make money. And if you're not going and figuring out the why of your brand being purchased, you are going to go and make erroneous decisions. You're gonna start allocating money based on where it is being purchased and where it's not being purchased. You're going to start allocating it based on how it is being purchased and how it's not being purchased. And that's not the answer. That's not the answer. You've got to figure out the why. And it kind of goes back to the first point. Is your customer with a capital C part of the equation? So you sound like Simon Sinek now. Partially. <laughs> uh, the thing with, the thing with, with what I would say with Simon is, is I, I think my difference from him is, are you measuring it? Because <laughs> he's just talking about it. I'm going and saying like, well, you got to go and figure out how much it matters. Because the problem is this: you're never going to have a hundred percent of the. Po- and, and this is where I disagree with uh, with uh, Simon on this. The way he speaks it, and I don't think he necessarily means it, but the way it's perceived is that everybody in your target customer base operates that way. God knows, no. Like, take a look at Coca-Cola; they make the majority of their profits from less than ten percent of their drinkers. Yeah, that, that yeah, light buyer effect. 
Yeah, right. And I and I think that's that's the part that you got to figure out. Like, why do you make money, hmm. right? And like, and and are the clues in how and where? Absolutely. But the why will differ. Why people buy your product in Australia is not the same as why they buy it in America or why they buy it in Canada or the United Kingdom. Are there going to be groups of people that buy for the same why? Absolutely. Yeah. But you don't make the assumption that you're seeing the same penetration that's there. Um, I had an opportunity to uh, work with a prominent global CPG firm um, a few years ago, and they couldn't understand why in uh, their market penetration and brand development index in the United Kingdom was much lower than it was in America. And I'm like, because the Brits are not Americans? <laughs> like, they, they have a different competitive set in your category? Like, they, they, the, the alternative in the store is not the same. They don't shop at the same stores. They don't have the same um, uh, practices. Like, you know, like, like some of the foods um, that uh, were, were, were offered from the CPG were in the snack aisle in the United States, but were not in the snack aisle in the United Kingdom. Uh, they just didn't have the equivalents for it. And it's like, so the why of, you know, of, <laughs> why of these people consuming this is, is really variable. Um, and, uh, and that's something to take a look at. And, and, and if I kind of go and put a really funny one into this, you know, how come no, how come Americans aren't going and eating Marmite or Vegemite? <laughs> well, Tom Hanks like, did. <laughs> why not? Like, well, Tom Hanks did, but I'm like, 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 there's 300 million of them. Like what a market, like we should be pushing it out into the U S right. And, and you're like, Oh God, like we've spent $50 million trying to sell Marmite to Americans. Why is this not working? That's because you haven't figured out why they're not buying it. <laughs> and uh or why they won't buy it in the first place so uh, i actually know the the answer to that um there's not oh, enough sugar okay. in it and too much salt yeah i i remember my first marmite experience as a 17 year old on an ex on a music exchange to the united kingdom i still remember it very clearly <laughs> and now i enjoy it but back then i did not <laughs> <laughs> it's good to put in um in your cooking as well so um very interesting brand story behind that actually yeah that's a, another whole um topic for for vegemite what's one of the most spectacular examples of like getting branding and brand valuations wrong that's like completely failed uh one that i was uh privy to or one that i was part of, one that i went and delivered either either or all right uh i, I i'll go and 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 call one on myself okay. um so uh, uh, I, I, uh, I was asked to go and do um, um, a, uh, a brand value reconciliation um, for, um, for a financial institution a number of years ago. And, um, and, you know, in my initial conversations before I started going and taking a look at the numbers, I went and, you know, was caught in the crowd. They had had some good advertising. Their CEO had gone and said some good things, et cetera. And I was like, yeah, you know, like, you know, good for you guys, et cetera. Right. And then we go and actually go and take a look at the numbers that were underneath. And what had happened was, is that the, the actual underlying performance of the brand and the business had declined year over year. But the reason why their brand value had gone up is because, you know, we have to, in our brand value assessments, we have to go and account, well, how's the sector doing? So the sector as a whole had just gone up so much that it had offset in absolute terms the decline the brand had experienced. So in a net effect, the brand value went up. So I was eating um, a lot of my own bile in that moment because I had been saying, you've gone up. And it's like, no, what you really did is you managed to ride the coattails without falling off. 
in terms of going and increasing your value and in terms of your fundamentals you're actually in a dangerous situation versus a year ago um and uh, you know it's funny just me even sharing this right now makes me still feel embarrassed and uncomfortable that that was the case and i'll tell you this i definitely went to learn from it i i now will never go and and commit to go by conjecture or by experience i will actually want to go and take a look at what has gone and happened underneath it's uh it's those um those pr professionals that point everyone in the wrong direction right <laughs> yeah so so that that's that's what i would say have to go and say uh, has been no, that, that's and great. That say, yeah and i think the other um uh, the other biggest one that i'm privy to is um um there is a uh, a prominent um brand um um in the middle east um that um was looking for global brand guidance so they brought in people from the us from britain um from parts of europe to essentially go and help them and one of the organizations that i was going and working with um went and sent two jewish ladies to go and deliver the pitch and look for me i'm like that seems completely natural but um you kind of got to be conscientious of the fact that there are certain biases that exist in some countries still and that was kind of glossed over and uh, and you know it was material because we would have made a lot of money if that had been successful <laughs> in that uh, alliance uh, that we were going and pitching in together um so uh, and i didn't know about that until after the fact so it was uh, i was like oof uh, it's uh, you know it's it's not intentional um but it happened and um and it goes back to you know why uh, were you unsuccessful and you got to go and take prejudices into account and and i for one i'm very glad that we are really globally taking a look at the prejudices that we've inherited for decades and centuries and millennia um and we still have to be responsible for the fact that they are there yeah. and they will influence um purchasing habits uh, unconsciously no matter how proactive we try to be hey so this is my last sort of formal question before i ask you a set of standards and more personal ones um Really interested to hear, and you've touched on this already, the future of brands and how you see it. You mentioned ecosystems and changing from quality as like a, a measure of the strength of a brand. Um, where we are now to where you see five, 10 years down the track, what do you think branding will be all about and what are we, what are we going to be focusing on? Um, I would have to say... some of the most successful brands and i think a number of them don't exist yet are going to be ones that will start anticipating and solving the pain points before we go and hit them um there's a few good examples of it right now uh, not that it's universal but tesla has definitely gone and solved for a number of the pain points in terms of how a vehicle works um really their user interface and the features that they have inside their vehicle um some of them are just absolutely excellent um the comfort that is there about the fact that you know that your cameras are on in case something bad happens to your vehicle and you can go and demonstrate to your insurance company that it wasn't your fault that provides a, a real peace of mind and no other car company would have had that and and they address the ecosystem and the oh, car is not there in isolation and also the bio weapon mode as well. So if you get uh, nuked with uh, nuclear fallout or like, you know, another yep. mass pandemic happens, you can just push a button and the HEPA filters like get rid of all that. Are, are exactly. Got to go and kick in. So they've really 
consciously or unconsciously, and I, I will never go and attempt to say that I have any semblance of understanding of the inside of Elon's, Elon Musk's mind, but what they've gone and created is that they've taken responsibility for the vehicle or their offering inside the ecosystem inside which their customer uses it. So um, that cross integration, those are gonna be your successful companies. Um, another one that I really admire today is Stripe. Um, they're not a consumer brand exactly, yet they're critical for the consumer experience. And what have they gone and done is that they've really gone and understood that there's an ecosystem problem and they've gone and initially started with an extremely simple solution for what hadn't been solved for decades inside the payment space. And now they're worth tens of billions of dollars uh, because they've gone and taken that ethos and they've continued to go and say, okay, what's the next barrier we can break? What's the next barrier that we can break? What's the next, you know, incrementally just go and reduce the, the things that will prevent a transaction from resolving. And that to me is so critical because the brilliance to me, and again, again, I don't know if it's conscious or not is, but no company ever goes and says, this is the revenue we didn't realize because we fucked up. Oops. Maybe I wasn't supposed to swear on this. But no, 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 that's great. Swearing is encouraged. Uh, nobody goes and says, well, look, we, uh, we, uh, we had $150 million in revenue last year, but if we hadn't screwed up in all these different ways, we would have had 400 million in revenue. Like where's the CFO or CEO who comes out and says that? Uh, and how many of them are even going and doing that assessment internally? Why? Cause our accounting systems are not set up to go and show what didn't happen. They're only there for us to go and show what did happen. So it's like and you're basically what, referring to like opportunity cost right now. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and that's what Stripe went and tapped on, right? It was that restaurant who lost that sale because the customer wasn't able to pay. So they just left and it was never going to go and show up on their financial statements. But all of a sudden, and why, why was the benefits of Stripe and that whole ecosystem, uh, same thing with Square, uh, why were they all successful? Because it was real. Like you went and got cash in your account as a merchant. As a, as, a, as, a, as a seller of goods and services immediately. And you could have that unconscious association of like, oh my gosh, before I would have, like this would have been a problem in getting the payment facilitated. Yeah. So that, that whole thing is, I think, so critical in terms of being able to anticipate it. And I would say, if, I, if I'm gonna, gonna go and put up a bit of a political bent on this, it's the ability to go and make, call it things that have been regulated because they had to be regulated for the time, but those regulations have now become a crutch, but we don't know how to unregulate it without creating new problems. The organizations that are able to solve for that in either the direct consequence of the regulation or the downstream consequence of the consumer um, um, in terms of, of solving for that. So I think that's going to be um, the, probably some of the biggest drivers uh, that's there. And uh, last one, which I've been saying for a number of years, since speaking about it uh, back in New York, I think in 2014, um, is time. The most valuable brands in the future are the ones that give you the most time back. Well, you just mentioned and that this, with your Apple computer, with this sort of seamless crossover between one device and the other. I mean, that is, that's what they're selling, is time and familiarity. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that's going to be very, very critical. And uh, we're kind of seeing ecosystem information coming out on that. You're going to have the uh, um, iOS environment where it's able to go and tell you how much you're going and using your device. Um, when I just got my new MacBook, uh, I also had the option of having it be able to go and tell me how much I'm using my Mac, when I'm using it, what programs am I using it for. Um, my Android phone has that feature as well. 
that I'm able to go and put in and, and, and be able to track how much time am I spending on it and what apps and things like that. Um, and again, it's an instigator of being able to go and give time back. And, and we are in an, in, in an era as humanity where we have, are trying to accomplish the most in the same amount of time that was had with the people 100 years ago as the same amount of time with the people 1,000 years ago. And going back to, imagine if we had gone and said, um, Edgar, I'm going to come and visit you in Canada and we're going to go and do an hour interview. Or can you come down to Australia and do this, you know, one hour uh, thing in person with us? Think of the ratio of time, like easily, easily round trip, all the other costs. It would have been like 60 hours to one. And what did we do? I would be shocked if we, if I said we collectively between the two of us spent an hour in advance of this in the administration of this call. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we just saved 58 hours because of that. And that's just one person. That should be uh, Zoom's oh. new tagline, I think. <laughs> okay, so on, on that point, um, uh, obviously you're a branding expert. Um, really interested to know what books you're reading right now that you can recommend other people or maybe books you've read in the past which you'd highly recommend people read um, in conjunction with this interview. Uh, all right. So there's, I'm going to go and give you, um, um, a nonfiction and a fiction. How about that? Sounds good. I would say the most impactful, uh, fiction book that I've gone and read in the past year, year and a half, um, is something called Neptune's Brood. It's by Charles Strauss. It's a science fiction novel. And it is, as my wife put it, it's the science fiction of accounting. And, and, and that's how she interpreted it. She read it before me. I, I devoured it, reading it after. And the best way to go and put it is, what if you extrapolated um, uh, cryptocurrencies thousands of years into the future? And how is the recognition of value and money? So I kind of read the book, not from necessarily the story, but the implications that were written into it by the author. Charles Strauss into society. And it was riveting because it essentially was what is happening today. And he, by the way, wrote it only a few years after Bitcoin came out. Okay. And he went and extrapolated into the future a very possible way. And there's a concept in there, which is long money, medium money, and short money. Short money is what we go and do our transaction with. The long money is where the real power resides. And long money takes a very long time to go and convert into medium money and, and then from medium to short. So that that whole piece is there and we have our modern equivalents like look can you go and sell your house tomorrow very easily and the answer is no can you go and sell your 10 million dollar 10 billion dollar business tomorrow very easily the answer is no so we actually have our proxies for long money medium money and short money um quite very much so today and they're changing forms you know it went from having cash was your short money to my digital tap is my short money right I don't even need to take the time and sorting out and having to go and give you $26.47 for this uh, lunch that I bought. I just tap my phone um, and it's going to go and pay for it. So that, um, that one I would say is the fiction one. And then I just want to make sure I get my pronunciation um, uh, uh, right on the other one. Um, uh, the um, Hold on. Let me just uh, Google to the rescue. It's Google to the rescue. Yeah. So it's, uh, 
it's it's a it's a book on all of just the trends that uh, has just gone and happened um, uh, over the past decades. So things that we kind of perceive around poverty and how much uh, how much we perceive that there's poverty in the world versus how much poverty there is in reality, um, how much we believe people are dying. So it's the gap between perceptions and reality. Um, and it's, it's, um, I, I can put the link in the comments. Yeah. It's Hans, Hans Rosling. So he's a, he's a physician and he's, he's not passed away, but he wrote this book with his, his kids. It's called Tactfulness. So that would be uh, the book that I would go and recommend to go and read for anybody, especially what is going on in the world today. We are so disconnected with our perceptions from reality. Um, and it goes back to bias. And he's, he went and wrote this book several years ago to just go and say how we've got an inherited bias. Um, and I was at a conference a number of years ago where um, one of the speakers went and said something that just hit me right into the core of my body, uh, which is said, we live in an era of zombie facts. We go and have, see something on the news, like, you know, this number of uh, people were affected with this disease, or uh, these people went and suffered uh, in this way financially, or we had this success happen in this part of the world. And then years go by, and we actually treat it as a contemporary fact versus what it was back then. So she called it zombie facts, things that are no longer true, but we relate to it as being the case today. And I think with everything that is going on in the world, you're seeing a lot of people doing the fact finding, right? Like, you know, uh, going and saying how many people are being arrested or how many people are being charged with things or uh, people that have been assaulted. And they're actually going and pulling these facts out. And they're actually going and saying, this is what is actually happening in reality versus what we think is happening. And I'm so glad that that is going on. And that book will really allow you to get that uh, sense to yourself. And it's also very good at going and conveying visually what the impact of that discrepancy is. And what I really loved about it is, is you, you, you follow the book as the authors, Hans and his, um, his kids have you go and answer questions for yourself that they went and asked and you grade yourself. So, you know, it's an, on the honor system and you grade yourself in terms of how well you're doing. And, you know, I pride myself on, on, you know, being well-versed. I, I, I read a lot. I, I, I try and keep as unbiased as possible. I didn't get a hundred percent on any of them. So, uh, you know, it just, I, I had to go and, you know, <laughs> eat, 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 eat my own, uh, eat my own zombie facts as I was going through this. Um, and it was, it was sobering and it has made me a better business leader and it has made me uh, a more pragmatic, um, facilitator of conveying information to, um, to my clients and, um, also to the people that I work with in my educational capacity. That's great. Uh, I'm, I'm definitely going to read that then. Um, I've never heard of it. So that's great. Um, what about websites? Uh, is there like a guilty pleasure that you have or something from an intellectual perspective that you always uh, consume or, or use? Twitter. Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> what for, uh, for arguing left, leftist political. <laughs> arguments, no, I, 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 for a number of years, I didn't really know how to use Twitter very well. Um, and then I think it kind of nailed it on me where I went and just started um, going and having people in my feed who knew way more about their subject matter that was interesting to me than I would ever be able to go and learn for myself. Yeah. So I just started adding those people in across the spectrum. Um, and then uh, I also went and, and started adding people who 
really talked about subjects where I felt I had a very strong attachment to it, whether it was politics or whether it was a sociology or whatever the heck it is. Well, talk to me at the top of your head then. Uh, in terms of who to follow? Yeah. Oh, um, okay. One of my uh, favorite ones to follow right now is, um, is at Naval, um, uh, in ABAL, uh, at Balaji S. Um, he's, um, he's the one who uh, really went and just brought a lot of facts and information to go and take a look at um, um, around the whole pandemic situation very early in January. And, and he's just unpacked a lot. And, and following him and who he has gone and interacted with, um, has opened up a lot. And then I think one of my favorite kind of like early ones in this whole thing is at SHL, Sahil Lavinia. He's the founder of Gumroad. And, um, you know, it was a, a venture funded startup that blew up and he went and worked hard and paid everybody's money back and kept the business going. And then he shares everything about it. Every quarter he goes and publishes the financial statements of a company that is privately held and goes and shows what's happening. And it's like, that takes some guts. Yeah. Like that really is a comfort. And, and I've actually learned a lot from him and how to go and build my business. Um, and so I would say those three um, have either opened something up that's uh, had me think differently, um, having critiqued myself or have just facilitated a catalyst of kind of a network effect through Twitter uh, where I've gone and managed to learn from a lot of other people that were like one hop or two hops away from them. Mm-hmm. That was great. Um, I would um, say that, that would be a big one. No, that's great. I mean, you mentioned one of one of those to me before, and that's who I follow, and I, I found him really good. So, um, what about uh, a piece of tech you can't do without? Uh, is it the MacBook? I, if I if I had to like really call myself out on it, it's a touchpad on the MacBook. <laughs> I just I I I I I just struggle with um, like I haven't I haven't had to use a mouse in seven years. Ever since I switched to Mac, I just haven't needed to unless I'm using a PC. I still have my PC, but I I took it out eight months ago because I wanted to go and take some music that I had produced that I had left on there. <laughs> like I I I I don't have an vested interest in, in going into that. So um I, I would I would say it's that. And um and I think it it, it just facilitates a lot. I, I'm just really amazed in just the ecosystems that have become available. Um, and, and, and kind of like cater to me. So I, I've really kind of customized the apps that I go and interact with inside there as well in terms of how do I go and, and leave notes for myself for the future or how do I go and, and brainstorm uh, or how do I go and, and, and capture communiques to go and give to other people. So yeah. the fact that it facilitates that so seamlessly uh, and it's intuitive um, is, is very helpful for me. That's interesting. Okay. Um... What about uh, this is your time to sort of promote yourself or what you're working on, uh, anything. Uh, what do you want to tell the, the listeners if they're interested in, in what you had to say today? So I got to just really put a shout out to uh, some of the members of our team at Avasta who, um, especially Fan Nguyen, who's been, uh, who's a former student, then became an intern, then became an employee. And now she's like instrumental in, uh, in developing um, our guide to the ISO standard. It initially started as a actually a 15-page document in prose form um, that was requested by a prospect to understand um, how could they go and convey that idea inside their organization um, and what it has turned into. We're going to be launching uh, it publicly next month. Um, is a an instruction manual 
for how to implement the ISO standard for somebody at, at the single brand level um, from, you know, from soup to nuts, including some, um, you know, basic foundations of measurement. And we go and give the full freedom for um, people to go and make things more sophisticated because they have the resources or they have their personal know-how. But uh, somebody who is a, uh, call it a business owner, like you have a restaurant and you're wanting to figure out if I should go and expand the restaurant or you're a brand manager and you're responsible for your geography or for your, you know, customer group and you want to be able to become better at it, that instruction set is there um, to be able to follow that standard, gain the benefits from it. And the part that I'm most proud of is, is that you don't need to talk to any of us to be able to take advantage of it. And um, we've had over 40 individuals over the past nine months review it, give feedback, constructive criticism, copy editing, designing it. Um, and I'm just very excited to, to go and make it publicly available um, and, uh, and hopefully it just creates a life of its own um, as people are able to um, gain the benefits of that wisdom. Um, you know, right. Part of it from me professionally, what I teach, but then also really a lot of it is just from the great questions that have been posed back to us at the development team as to, well, why are you saying this? Or what's another way that you could go and say this? So I love the fact that it was created by a community. Um, you know, you know but by the end of it, I've played a very small part. Yeah, oh, that's great. I'm sure you can claim credit. <laughs> that's your own personal uh, brand, right? I am, I am. But, uh, but I make sure that everybody who, who contributed to it material is getting their, their due for sure. And I, and I acknowledge that there needs to be some kind of a focal point. And if it happens to be me right now, so be it. But I'm hoping that in months or years time, uh, that becomes less and less important. Sure. Hey, so um, we met on LinkedIn. Um, say someone's listening to this episode, they want to get in touch with you. Something that we said or you said sparked interest. Um, what's the best way for them to, to get in contact? into contact with you um i am most responsive uh, on twitter and on linkedin and you are absolutely welcome to email us at avasta if you're interested in what we go and do commercially or if you want to kind of get exposed to bits of the brand evaluation guide early so that that's very easy it's discover at avasta.co so i presume you're going to go and I'll put and the links on, on the article as well. Yeah. So that would be the, uh, you know, one of three different ways. You have your email, you have your, your professional social media on LinkedIn, and you go and get your chaos of Twitter. Uh, and you're able to go and get your, your access in through any of those. Oh, great. Uh, well, look, uh, Edgar, that, that's, that's a wrap. So thank you very much for your time. Uh, I'm sure anyone who's interested in branding will, will at least answer some maybe niggling questions that they've always wanted to ask someone who's at arguably the forefront of brand strategy and brand valuation. So uh, thanks again for your time. Uh, thank you. It has been a real pleasure. Uh, thank you for the great questions that you went and put forth to me. And, and I love the fact that this was just so human. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, uh, you know, I did have some questions I wanted to answer and, you know, did some prep time. So you could say I spent more time prepping than perhaps you did. And uh, I'll give you more than five minutes notice next time. <laughs> I appreciate that very much. And uh, I have no objections to going and answering questions that people have. You got your three different vectors by which you're able to get a hold of us. That's great. Thanks. Did your brain hurt a little while listening to that? I know mine did. And we've talked multiple times before this interview, and I'm only just scratching the surface of what he has discovered. 
I'm personally very interested in all the calls and relationships between marketing activities and investments and revenue, which is why I had to talk to Edgar and his perspective and approach with regards to branding is refreshing and unorthodox. As always, go to the James Hammond blog page to view a full list of all the websites, books and resources mentioned in this episode. I do this to save you time so you can just relax and focus on listening. This is episode 7 and officially one of the episodes that form part of our strategy series of interviews. At the time of publishing this episode, I'm not 100% sure who will be next on the list, so I can't really give you a heads up just yet. So keep an eye out for future updates. For now, that's a wrap. Take care, and I'll see you again next time. Just a few things before you take off. Remember to sign up to the e-newsletter so you are alerted before anyone else when the next episode drops. You can find me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, and don't be afraid to say hello or give me some constructive feedback. Also, visit the blog page of this podcast to view all the links and other material referenced in this episode. Thanks again for listening.